listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you are interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, $5, 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. It's Digital Noise with Sir Dr. Professor John Golson. Hi. Chris. It's Chris. (laughs) Chris, I'm so glad you just said your name because it's been so long that I wasn't sure. You weren't sure what my name was? Yeah, when you answered the door, I was like, oh. No, I've seen this guy before. <laughs> I know I know him from somewhere. It has been a hot minute since we've recorded a digital noise together. There was a whole uh there was a whole citywide festival in there somewhere that happened. And multiple uh COVID infections and all sorts of stuff. So. No, COVID's gone. They cured uh, it. Oh, They're, did they? It's not, yeah, it's Is not that a thing. I wonder anymore. what I got then. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, it was weird. It was uh I have this still have the Leftover desire to eat human flesh, but other than that, that's cap. Well, no, that's not Captain Trips. Uh, did, did your insides liquefy? <laughs> oh, sure. First oh, that's day, Captain Trips. Is it yeah. okay? Yeah. Oh, good to know. Man, I thought it was COVID. No, no. yeah. As it was weird because I kept testing negative, but I was like, nah, this is COVID for sure. Oh, in real life? Well, like, I no, mean, I no kept bit. like throwing up like projectile vomiting oh, and then like I was hovering off the ground by like a couple feet all the time and like speaking with this unearthly uh, voice. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, it was bad, but that reminds me of a lot of the movies we're talking about this week. John got the pit of despair stack, which is to say lots and lots of movies. You have never heard of, I have never heard of, of the, that of, of the horror bent more than not. Um, that none of these are like an all time classic and some of them are downright terrible, but I would argue there's some of these that are good enough that you're like, okay, for the right audience, these are going to be pretty fun. I don't know if John is that right audience or not. Yeah, I, I don't know either. We'll find, we'll find out. <laughs> the thing about this was I was like, I'm going to try to get this whole, I'm going to try to watch all these before South by starts. And I didn't. And then South by happened. And then there was a, a mysterious illness. And, uh, and then I was looking at them today because I had to, you know, gather them up and bring them over, bring them back over here. And I was looking at them today and I was like, Oh my God, this feels like some, uh, test I didn't study for. <laughs> like I was looking at the titles like, uh, when you have like a half dozen forgettable movies, and there's a couple that aren't forgettable, but there, when you have some that are forgettable, and then like some weeks have passed, I was like, can I, will I be able to speak my opinion to any of these? We're about to find out. Well, we're going to get started with a Neo Giallo from Japan. I didn't even know that was a thing. Is this like Japanese scotch? It's just like the Japanese, like, fuck it, this is what we do now. 
Uh, I've got a story about this one. Uh, Maniac Driver from the director of Gunwoman, which I am, have I never heard of. Beatles song. <laughs> Gunwoman? Maniac, oh, Maniac Driver. Driver. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. So this follows, actually, a taxi driver is the main character, uh, Fiji Naga, played by Tomoko Kimuri, who is, right off the bat, we see, completely insane, and he has been... Uh, targeting young women around Tokyo, uh, who, and his goal is he wants to f- find this victim that fits all of these sort of categories in his mind, um, before taking his own life. Because basically his wife was tortured and killed by a home invasion person. And so in his head, the balance for some reason that I was never entirely clear on is to kill other young women in exactly the same way. And then he can commit suicide. Mm-hmm. I was very confused about how he got through this logic path of like, yeah, that seems like the ticket, but um, it's a very short film. It's barely 75 minutes. It's pretty brutally violent. I will say that it's definitely, it has a certain amount of influence from uh, American stuff as well. Like, like the same things, seventies gritty films that were influencing people like Tarantino for sure. There's some of that really dirty, like uh, what's that movie with the Al Pacino cruising, the stuff in there, like the way some of it's shot and just the way the people are portrayed reminds me of that. But uh, ultimately it's the look of this thing. That's going to make you like it or not, because it's shot in a very neon drenched color giallo style that I actually thought was impressive and well done and just different enough to sort of be its own thing. But as a story, you're like, I just have a hard time watching a movie with a guy just torturing and murdering one woman after another. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I made the mistake of watching this, um, with my windows open at my apartment <laughs> while people were walking their dog behind my apartment. And it's, uh, it, you, it's, it's almost softcore pornography. Um, I felt like it was kind yeah. of a, I, I mean, if I can be really crude, I felt like it was sort of like, um, a jack off film for like psychopaths. Is yeah. Basically what the movie. Well, I mean, there's lots of me. shots like where, you know, the girl's shirts come off and you see the guy just sort of running his knife and slicing open their nipples type stuff. So yeah. there's like Fulci ish type influence with that stuff. But it's like, you're already about a guy who's confused and. I mean, are we supposed to feel sorry for the guy because his wife was tortured and murdered and now he's torturing and murdered? I'm like, I get confused with stuff like that. Like, what was your goal here? I think the goal is for people who like to see girls get tortured and murdered to have something entertaining to watch. And I agree with you. I think that was the case as well. Uh, I do like the the motorcycle makes a cool noise. Is this the one? The motorcycle (laughs) makes a, like a, it makes a, um, a human sound and I can't remember how it goes, but it was like the mo I remember the thinking like, Oh, that's a really cool sound for the motorcycle. Is it just the frog? You know, bing, 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 no, it's, bing, like bing. A, it's like a, uh, it's either, if I can remember right, it's like a animal growl or like it, it does not have a natural motorcycle sound. And I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, so I, I think we've given you a pretty good idea of like what to expect from this one. There's audio commentary, uh, by the director, but in English, there's a 30 minute making of maniac driver. Uh, and then, uh, slideshows for behind the scenes, um, a theatrical trailer. Yep. Not really crazy about this one, but Hey, what are you going to do? Um, I love the Giallo and Giallo influence stuff, but honestly, it was the sex level of this that turned me off where I was like, I don't, if you're killing women to this degree and there's torture involved, 
it really feels squicky when you start having as much nudity as this in it, you know? Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, who is this for? Uh, next up is Nightmare Symphony, which is a pretty cool name for a horror movie. Kind of surprised it wasn't already taken. This is another modern film what, with a giallo backwards look. Uh, this definitely looking more at uh, uh, Lucio Fulci than anything else, but straight up unmissably uh, a uh, tribute to the genre. Frank Lologia plays a fictional version of himself. He's an American director who's working in Italy on a horror film called A Peacock's Tale. And things start to blur for him about what's real and what's not when a killer who wears a peacock mask begins murdering people working on the production. Um, and so it's sort of a whodunit or did anyone do it or is it all in his head? So it's like kind of mixing a lot of sort of Italian and then a few American horror 70s tropes into it. And I full credit for the ambition. I really I was like, I like what you're trying to do here, but the budget limits it so much that it just it just always looks kind of cheap. And I felt like that really kind of hurt it. I'm like, y'all should have shot this on film and given it a real grainy look. That would have helped it enormously with the period pieceness of it that you're trying to accomplish. Um, but I, I, this is another one where I'm like, okay, I mean, in, so there's, there's some interesting ideas. There's some really cool visual stuff, but ultimately I was like, eh. Yeah. And unlike the other one, it's like when you ask the question, who is it for? It's sort of like there's certainly better giallos you haven't seen, um, and unlike unlike the previous film, it it's not su- supported with a great amount of softcore pornography. No. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Supported uh, this, is the word you're looking this, for. This movie, uh, I don't ever. I it's rare that I use the word sucked on this show. <laughs> I think this movie sucked. Wow. Um, there, there's a chase scene in this movie that may be the worst chase scene I've ever seen in my entire life, where there's like a car chasing a woman, and the and the woman is <laughs> she can like she's running, but she keeps like tripping and stumbling, and the car is going so slow and kind of waits for her to get back up. Right. So they think <laughs> chasing like, her. I remember. It's so oh, yes. bad. You're like, wait, what is happening? It's awful. If there's any one reason I can tell anyone to see this, it's to witness one of the the most ill-devised uh, chase scenes ever committed to film. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and accurate. Um, yeah, I, there's some actual halfway decent gore shots in here, but ultimately, I didn't even... I don't know. It's just there's like... It felt like there's a disconnect between the cinematographer and the writer and the director, where all three are trying to make different types of movies than what they should have. Like, there should have been much more pre-shot, com- like, here's what we're looking for type of thing, you know? Um, because, yeah, it's just, it just feels constantly cheap and not terribly well thought out, but with a cool idea. It's like the Giallo version of those, like, uh, straight-to-video Dolph Lundgren action movies. Yes, exactly. It's sort of just like, yeah, I get what you're doing, but, like, it but feels why? like there's no passion involved in, like, why? Why? What's happening? Like, is it just product? Yeah, that's you what know? it feels like. Yeah. Um, there's behind-the-scene bloopers. Really? Bloopers on this? But, yes, eight and a half minutes of them. Interview with the director, <laughs> Domziano <laughs> Cristofaro. Uh, interview with the screenwriter, Antonio Tentori. Uh, the original soundtrack... The complete retro soundtrack is available. Uh, and yeah, that, that was the uh, nightmare symphony, mm-hmm. which is 
That was a film that we saw. Uh, but we're going to go back to the 70s with a film that has been on my, I really should have seen this by now list for a very long time, which is The Dunwich Horror, directed by Daniel Holler, and was sort of notable before it came out as being the film that America's sweetheart Sandra D decided she was going to make a non-for-children movie. Uh, he's like, I need to, I can't be this Disneyfied woman forever. I am a grown woman. I need to be in an adult film. So she picked an HP Lovecraft adaptation with Dean Stockwell to do it. That is funny watching it because there's so many scenes you could feel the director going, come on, just take your shirt off. Just for, for one second, just show a boob. Show, how about some side boob? And it's just like, it's so insinuated that, you're almost seeing it throughout it. And apparently that was kind of, that was an actual fight going on on set about that. She's like, well, I want to be adult. I don't want to be that adult. Uh, suffice it to say, I wouldn't say this movie projected Sandra D into an adult career as an actress, but it is maybe the most accurate to Lovecraft Lovecraft film I've seen. Hmm. Like, it definitely has the most amount of, like, okay, this doesn't feel like it had a bunch of shit added on top of the Lovecraft. Which it actually it, strips a lot away from the it, original it, story. It does. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, go ahead and tell the story of this one. Oh, gosh. Do I, um. You, would you rather not? There is a, there's a guy, is his name Wilbur Wheatley? Is that the name of the? Wilbur Wat- Watley. Wilbur Watley. There's a dude that, in the original story, there's a dude that shows up in town and is doing research. And the more people get a better look at him, the more they realize that it's not a man, that it's actually like a creature who is researching the past of this, uh, this small town. Um, the movie it takes the tack of kind of a little bit of like the fears that were going on in the early seventies that your squeaky clean sons and daughters were going to meet a crazy hippie and join a cult. Yeah. And I think the movie does a pretty good job transplanting Lovecraft into that early seventies, uh, it all it's like a, it's like just a hair's breadth away from being satanic panic. But there was a concern that like, oh, our square kids can't hang out with the long hairs, or they're going to end up in a cult. Certainly post Manson, I think that was you know probably a fear. So it feels very specific to the time in a way that I actually kind of like. Um, I this is not a great movie, but we all have those movies that aren't particularly fantastic that we still kind of uh vibe with yeah that's me on this yeah and that's the way i am with this one it's it's got a lot of like late 60s video psychedelia in it as well instead of having like actual creatures and monsters it tries to represent like losing losing your mind as as happens in all lovecraft stuff it tries to do that with like uh, but, psychedelic video effects from, from yeah. the early seventies. That's the only way I can think to describe it. Yeah, just, no, I mean they just turn you know, the contrast up all the way up. Yeah, and you're like, oh, okay, that's what crazy man. Looks the like. greens are purples and the purples are green, and it's like, okay. <laughs> uh, Dean Stockwell plays Wilbur in this. Um, none of the Dunwich Horror adaptations, of which there've been a few, none of them have portrayed Wilbur the way he is in the in the story itself right i'm kind of where he's waiting. more of a, a monster oh right? he's a straight up monster yeah. he, uh, he has, when the idea is like it's a monster who's doing his best to hold himself into a human form yeah but if you look closely you can tell that's not a person yeah yeah um i still think there's like a great version of this story to be made that's true with a lot of lovecraft stuff there's but this one in particular it still feels like 
it's kind of it remind the adaptations remind me of I Am Legend in that everybody sort of borrows one thing from the story, but not all the things from the story. And it's right. like borrow all the things. Stop Just picking. Tell one. the goddamn story as is. And this one picks cultists, and yeah. that's fine. But it's like I I I still want to see a great version. This is a this is a pretty good version. Um, but it's but it is one of those movies I can acknowledge is not going to be for everybody. I dig it. Yeah. No, I mean, and it's it's not going to be one of those films where you're like, oh, let's have some beers and watch this because it's a slow burn, you yeah. know. Um, it's it's really if you're a really big Lovecraft fan, I think you're you've got of the actual writing of Lovecraft, you probably are the person with the biggest chance of liking this. Or if you'd like seventies kitsch, because mm-hmm. this is very kitschy. Um, yeah. Uh, also, Ed Begley's last performance, I believe. Oh, yeah. Not Ed Begley Jr., obviously, since he made movies post-1970. Um, but this is from Arrow, and Arrow has put a few ex- extras here. There's a, a audio commentary by Guy Adams and A.K. Benedict that's kind of played for laughs more than anything else. The Door into Dunwich, which is a conversation between two writers, Stephen R. Bissett and Stephen Laws, about Lovecraft and Lovecraft-adjacent stuff, um, which is fun. I, w- I actually watched about half of this, and it was fun. There's two guys who just know Everything about Lovecraft and Lovecraftish stuff, just having a whatever the fuck fun conversation with each other about the topic. Um, there's After Summer, After Winter with sci fi and fantasy writer Ruth Ann Emrys talking about the film and Cthulhu stuff. The Sound of Cosmic Terror for 32 minutes, which is, uh, talking about Les Baxter's score for the film, which was actually, uh, the, this guy, this was kind of the last big project he got to do for a while because there were accusations from someone who worked for him that he was just hiring ghost composers. Oh, interesting. Uh, which apparently has been wildly disproven. It was just a rift between this guy and that's how the other guy chose to like shit on less, but it, ne- he never recovered in his career from it, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, theatrical tr- trailer and image gallery. Yeah, this is a fun one. Ultimately, it's just not for everybody. Um, and then we have one that will definitely not be for anyone. It certainly wasn't for me, which was Nightmare Man. This is, uh, unlike the other ones that we reviewed that you've never heard of, this one is actually from 2006. Uh, man, I don't know why we had such as this whole stack of just like, meh hard that came in and i felt terrible after i realized what i had given you i was like god damn it why did i pile all the meh hard hey i like i like the roll of the dice on some of it you know i like i always like the you know the kind of like especially with horror more than any other genre i i can i can very willingly roll the dice on that stuff well nightmare man follows ellen and bill who want to have a kid and somewhere it, she has decided to buy a fertility mask. I don't know where you buy a, a cursed fertility mask, but she did. Costco. Yeah, right. Um, well, it's you wish. Got, you need a membership. It's wish, oh, okay. right? Because she just ordered, you wanted a fertility ma- mask, but the one you got from wish was oh, cursed. Yes. Yeah, of course. And, um, so she, the mask is like somehow come alive. It's summoned some sort of mask wearing creature it appears that's assaulting her but then later in the film it's like but no there's actually a whole nother thing going on here but maybe they're both true i this one was like it felt like halfway through production they were like you know what this ending was going to be too expensive let's just make it where it was just people (laughs) you know yeah it's very uh 
it's very early 2000s and it's um approach i don't know how to describe it other than that it's very like there's a certain type of like i'm i'm a horror fan but there's like a whole nother subset of horror fans that can name every scream queen from like every straight to video movie ever made right and this feels adjacent to that subset of horror fans where it's like these are names that horror fans know like a certain type of horror fan knows where it's like people who work in these no budget uh low budget sort of direct video horror films this one is heavily influenced by evil dead um there's a lot of like demonic gore um but it's it never it never takes off um it is a little convoluted uh i let me let me think of how to say this there's like a certain type of acting where you're showing up to have a good time versus you're showing up to bring the best you can to the story at hand and it is people getting together to have a good time <laughs> uh it's not necessarily strong and everyone being like we're gonna really sell this uh sell this story it's more we're gonna hang out and do gore effects and it's gonna be cool and badass and you know it's certainly played enough film festivals and has enough did um, it yeah it played it played some horror film fest back in the day and uh it has its fans um so i on the one hand i get it but it's just a little too it's it's a little too DIY. It's a little too yeah. DTV for and me. A little too, as you said, derivative, where you're yeah. like, well, we see what you're trying to do, but you need to be a lot better if yeah. you're going to be that overt about what you're taking from. You know? Yeah, and I don't have the affection for the cast like somebody might who might forgive it, where they would be yeah. like, oh, it was really great because it stars this person. I guess this person, this some of this cast like, are like known for other lesser horror films, yeah, I guess. Like, I, I'm like, they're... They all seem like they've done a lot of horror, but not shit you generally know about. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, no, it's the, it, I don't even know how to describe it's, it's the people that go to the horror conventions and get these people to sign their, like, they will go and they will get the cast of Nightmare Man to sign eight by tens of scenes from Nightmare Man. And those people exist. I, I ain't one of them, but I know that they're out there. Can I tell you, this is just funny. So, right, she gets the mask and she starts thinking this thing is attacking her. And her husband's like, okay, well, we're going to take you to, uh, like, the doctor said, yo, she's paranoid schizophrenic. So he's like, look, honey, we're going to take you to the Institute. And somehow he just didn't put gas in the car, I guess. Cause like in the middle of the mountains, the car runs out of gas. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I guess I'll walk to the gas station. And then of course he's to who knows where he is. And she wanders in and there's just some people, some sexy people having a house party in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, they're just, they might as well have a body count written yeah. over their heads, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, yeah. I mean, it was tolerably watchable, but that's about the best I can give it, you know? Are you willing to go that far? It's, yeah, it's, it was, you know, it is, it's, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's a certain type of movie. I, I, there, it's, it is what it is. I, I will say I have I just to quantify it. I've like I did like it more than some of the ones that we've already mentioned today. <laughs> Fair. There's an audio commentary of the director, producer, and actress Tiffany Shepsis. Shepis. There's something out there: the making of Nightmare Man for 25 minutes, creating a nightmare, the making of Nightmare Man for 22 minutes, uh, 16 minutes of extended scenes. 
um, more behind the scenes stuff with the film star, uh, for 17 or about 18 minutes. There's a gag reel for seven minutes. What is the gag reels in these? Things? Okay. Uh, stills gallery, promo reel, audio film score track is played separately to a static image. They put a lot of extras on this thing for a film that I just have a hard time picturing anybody actually paying money for. But you know what? I'm not the only, t- my opinion is not all. Some people like stuff that I do not. That's fine. Whatever. <laughs> I have yes. a hard enough time for people who like wide release stuff that's garbage and get excited about it. Much less people who like only like tiny, almost <laughs> impossible to find indie horror like this. Or you're like, come on. There's a lot of good indie horror out there. But this one, this is what you're going with? I mean, that's even more true with the ghosts of Monday, the next one, which is probably Ooh. the worst of all of these. <laughs> I was like, Oh, look, it's got Julian Sands. Remember when that meant that something had the possibility of being good? And now it's like, no, he's, act- <laughs> he's acting in a completely different movie too than the rest of the cast. Yes. Yes, he is. <laughs> he, he, he brought a tent because he wanted to camp. That's, that's, that's what happened here. <laughs> That is a hundred percent accurate, sir. Uh, and I like a, even a bad ghost movie, but this is something else. Um, even Warlock is better than this yeah. <laughs> with Julian Sands in it. Yeah. Okay. So the Mark Hoberman plays a television director. He's shooting a pilot for a paranormal show that's investigating a, um, a place in Cyprus called the Gula Hotel. It's been shut down since the 90s, where apparently there was an incident where 100 people died and no one really knows what happened exactly. Julian Sands plays the host of the show. Bruce, who's obviously right off the bat, you're like, you're a jerk, right? You're just a, you're a jerk guy. And, uh, because he's like hitting all the, all the women and just, as you said, he's like chewing up every inch of scenery that's available to chew. Um, Bruce, the director's daughter, Sophia, is there as well. Um, uh, catch, he has a catchphrase. He's like, let's have a drink. Like, doesn't he yeah. say that like oh, over sorry. and over? His daughter, Julian Sands' daughter, is also the director's ex-wife. Weird, right? Yeah, no, he's like so... He's like taking his natural inclinations and leaning into them so hard that he's become somebody doing an impression of Julian Sands. They give him, but they give him a catchphrase. Like, I think most of his lines of dialogue start with him going, let's have a drink. And yeah. then he'll say whatever it is that he's going to say. <laughs> yeah, that is accurate. He does. He, the guy is clearly an alcoholic in here. Anyway, so things start, they start having ghostly stuff happens, especially around Sophia, who remember, starts having memories of being at the hotel as a child, but shouldn't it's like wait why do i have these memories um and then there's some shit about a cult and stuff about like you know i guess i'm not sure if it was cannibalism or vampirism or whatever but something that people can live forever and yeah whatever um this is it's not good i felt pity for this movie i did i did i felt the same way it's like you it's such a um it it may be the only one that we've talked about so far that I I feel sorry for. I think that there's a, a really a really uh, noble attempt to create something here. Um, you know, I've been in stuff as an actor where you 
you're in this, you're in the scene and stuff, and like you need more than what the director's giving you, mm-hmm. and like you're having to wing it, you're having to do the stuff on. It feels like you're alone, and like yeah, you're on set, and yeah, there's stuff going on, and there's a lot of actors in here who I'm like, they're not bad, bad. They're not like capital B bad. They could probably get work in real, yeah. in quote unquote real I agree. movies. And it's a in that case, it's always a thing of like, oh, these guys are like floundering. Yeah. Like no one is, no one is helping the actors. Like that's what, and- I, yeah, that is definitely what it feels like. Cause yeah, you're right. This is one of the, like a, a lot of the hard movies we've talked about so far. Acting was not a strong point. And this one, you're like, everybody's kind of fine, you know, but, but not, but not. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, it doesn't look like, yeah. looks like somebody's not telling them what to do. Yeah. And they're having to just wing it on a scene by scene basis. Who knows what order it was shot? Who knows if they even had full pages of the script? I have no idea. But it just had the feeling of people being like, and with Julius Sands uh, being Julius Sands being the way he is, sort of like so over the top, reminds me of whenever you have like a whole group of like a whole group of people, and you have the one person who's like everybody's looking at, who's like the but who's the the experienced actor, and they always sort of feel like like they have to overcompensate by being yeah, let's do this thing, we're gonna do this thing, right team? Yeah. He feels like the right team guy, you know, because he's gotta be. <laughs> it's a it's a tough one. I. I also I did not like it. Um, I, <laughs> to, to clarify, the angry emails. Uh, John gives us a negative. Yeah, I, you are just getting into it with some of the directors online from the show. <laughs> I'm sorry for limiting your acting career. <laughs> it's my new. It's my new thing is to have people write me and let me know that my opinion's wrong when I say <laughs> when I say I didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and if I can just a. a PSA for a moment, if you're a movie fan and you're a fan enough of movies to want to make movies, then you should be logical enough to realize that you don't like every movie, which means not everybody's going to like your movie. And that's how the world works. Yeah. Um, we're yeah. hyper aware of the fact that we're often wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> not this, this time. <laughs> but uh, this uh, Ghost of Monday was, uh, was a swing and a miss. And like, not just, a, it was like a, uh, it felt a little bit like a big old swing and a miss, like they fell on the ground. It was like, and I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It's a lot of, it's a great location. It's shot well. There are people in it you can tell are probably competent in any other situation. It does not come together, it does not add up to a whole. And it's always the directors who get pissed off at you, and here you are directly going, fuck you, director. Uh, <laughs> Just you know, asking I'm for I'm going to assume that it was the producer. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But it's, it's you know, it, it takes a village to make a movie or something. So or I, something. I'm not blaming the director. I'm blaming the villagers. Well, something a little bit different, at least, is Death Knot. I mean, yes, it's still a horror movie, and it's still very low budget. But uh, this one is not a... Um, you know, it's not influenced by Giallo. It's not a bunch of white people. <laughs> it's not from America. It's not from here. Uh, I kind of enjoyed this one. Um, it's two siblings go to their back to their hometown because their mother has killed themselves. And even though their mother apparently somehow sent them a psychic message in dreams saying, don't come here. They first thing they do is, well, let's go there. And all the villagers are like, what the fuck are you doing here? Get the hell out of here. Your mom was a witch. She's like evil and cursed and yada, yada, yada. Um, and then a bunch of weird shit starts happening, even though they're like, come on, there's nothing to this. And their friends start getting possessed. And yeah, um, it's not like this is a movie that easily could have gone into like crazy evil dead territory. And it kind of 
really tries hard to avoid being that type of film, I feel like. But it manages to be genuinely a little creepy at points. I thought especially with the performance of one of the friends who gets possessed. I'm like, wow, you are really fucking creepy when you're possessed. Um, I don't know. It's like, uh, this is Indonesian. And a lot of Indonesian film is like super, super, super over the top horror, like very gory and extreme. And this is not one of those ones really as much. It's going for more haunting. But, uh, I, I gotta say, like ultimately, I thought this was okay. It's not one of, I'm a big fan of Indonesian horror. This is not going to be the ones people, one of the ones people are going to be talking about, like for at length, but it's certainly, if you also like Indonesian horror, not only an interesting one to see, but one that's interesting because it's just, a, it stands out a little bit as different from what you expect from it. The, the, so there's one person kind of responsible for this one, Cornelio Sonny mm-hmm. is his name, and he wrote it and he directed it and he stars in it. Uh, pretty good director, pretty good actor. Probably not the greatest writer. I think he needed a, I think his script needed like a punch up. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just dry. If there's anyone, if there's any one thing kind of holding this movie back from being better, it's that it's a little slow and it's a little dry. Uh, It doesn't, it feels like stuff you've seen before. It's all, uh, pretty slickly made, like a, you know, above the board. It's just like, it's very, it's a very slick movie for something that I can't imagine cost very much, you yeah. know, but, and I, and I give all credit to Sonny for that, but it, the script needed some punch. It just, to me, it, it, after the opening scene, um, which was pretty punchy, um, it really, it really didn't reach any heights. It kind of just like, it sort of plays at the sort of like low volume for most of the movie's runtime. And there are a couple little moments of, creepiness but i i found it a little just a little bit dull um i would definitely see something by this guy again uh yeah it's definitely you know more than competently made yeah. we're like oh you have a, a pretty good sense of style you seem to be good at getting performances out of your actors you know how to shoot scary stuff but you're right it just it needed something for the scenes where nothing is happening because the dialogue is very dry and very like why are we listening to this <laughs> yeah. um yeah, because it was a, I guess it was the debut of him as a director, but he's been known as an actor before this. Yeah. But it's a really interesting debut. No question about it. Uh, no extra features on this one, but, uh, you can probably get it for pretty cheap. Well, from Wellgo. So. Is it the, is it, this may be the best of the new horror films that nobody's heard of. Oh, is it, easily. We have more, I think that covers it, doesn't it? I mean, we have one that's sort of horror comedy, but All right. we'll get to that. Uh, but we're going to go to martial arts. With an old Jet Li classic, the Tai Chi Master, or just Tai Chi Master, depending on uh, which version of the many releases over the years on DVD and VHS this has come out on. Um, this was back when I was really getting into renting stuff from iHeartVideo and like discovering Hong Kong movies. I was like, oh, this is one of the ones that got recommended to me. It's coming as part of a Jet Li two-movie collection. Uh, so you can buy them separately or you can buy them bundled for cheaper, which uh, this gets bundled with Jet Li's arguably the best Jet Li movie, Fist of Legend, which will be featured in review on uh, my next show with Wright. But uh, I actually, this is the one you chose. You chose to watch this one because uh, yeah, I gave you both. I was like, which one do you want to see? And you were like, this one. I would say... Fist of Legend is unquestionably the better film, but this is one of the better ones of his wire foo period when he's just like, I'm doing just crazy martial arts ridiculousness. Um, and, uh, 
he is, uh, as you might imagine, uh, with Tai Chi master, he's like, he grew up in a Shaolin monastery, uh, along with his best friend, Tian Bo, he's Jun Bao, uh, who are just trouble, right? They're like, they're, they're troublesome teenagers, as it were. And this is back when Jet Li was barely older than a teenager. But they grew up in there as monks, studying the martial arts, getting into trouble all the time. They're expelled from the temple. Uh, and their teacher, though, is kind of like, okay, well, I'm going to help you because, uh, at the very least, I understand. And, but they both have very different personalities. And the teacher sort of warns both of them, be careful of your own worst instincts, which of course are going to be problem when Tianbo ends up sort of like deciding he's going to go like where the money is, which is working for the fascist authorities as, as like a, you know, cause he's a super badass and they're like, yeah, we need super badasses to come be fascists with us. But Jet Li's, of course, more like, he's a man of the people. He's going to help. And so two best friends are forced to confront each other and fight. I mean, there's nothing wildly original in the plot here, to be sure. But if you want to see very impressive, fun as hell, Jet Li, wire foo action, this is one of the ones that are considered kind of like the probably in the top 10 for Jet Li. It's pretty good. Uh, I think that part of what makes it so watchable is like, you know, there's a reason why people end up being movie stars and like you get i think more than anything else from this movie you you get that movie star effect where like gently is so watchable mm. um and really like carries the whole movie on the strength of his charisma and persona uh it's it is a it without him it's a different watch yeah um i, I really think his his movie star quality shines uh in tai chi master yeah, no, 100% agree. Uh, this whole period, he was very, whenever he's playing roles where he has to sort of smile and be so ridiculously kind of innocent and likable, he's so great. The times when anyone casts Jet Li as a villain, I'm always like, what are you doing? Jet Li yeah. is not a villain type. And he gets a little, there's a little bit of playfulness in this movie. Oh, um, definitely. Yeah, it's not, it's not, uh, and that's something that surprised me because I think most of the Jet Li stuff I've seen has been like deadly serious. And so it was nice to see something that had a, a little bit more, I, I don't want to oversell it as being humorous, but it has at times lighter moments. Yeah. Um, I, I would say there's definitely has humorous bits, but it's trying to make it like a tragedy. The, yeah. div, the, the divide between these two friends. Anyway, uh, this is Ronan flicks who I just recently started getting stuff from, uh, which I'm excited that finally someone is doing releases of the golden age, the nineties, early nineties, late eighties of Hong Kong stuff. All this stuff that I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Shaw Brothers stuff too, but is anyone going to release this? Uh, you know, the legendary nineties stuff from Jet Li and Donnie Yen and Michelle Yao and Sammo Hung and like, where is that? And so these are one of the guys who are picking up that ball and running with it finally, which is great. By the way, please put out a box set of all the Mr. Vampire films and all the encounters of the spooky kind films. <laughs> that, that is all. But, Just uh, put it out in the universe. But unfortunately, this had recently come out. This, not recently, this had come out before on Dragon Dynasty DVD where it had a Bay Logan commentary that they couldn't get rights to that. But there's an interview, uh, here with star Chin Si Ho, who plays the friend, uh, the birthplace of Tai Chi, which is a tour of Chen Village, um, meditations on the master with Brett Ratner and Elvis Mitchell discussing the film That's for reasons. Pair. I know. I was like, how do they even know each other? <laughs> I mean, I guess they're both working film for a while, but you just don't picture those two 
ever talking. <laughs> um, also, since when does Brett Ratner know or care about uh, martial arts films? Okay. Uh, Twin Warriors with the two of them again talking about the stars of the film. Yeah, that feels like one of those, like, somebody who works for this company are friends with both of them separately. And we're like, oh, we could probably get these two together. <laughs> I don't know, but to, uh, I'll tell you, Tai Chi Master. If you if you have any interest in this period, it's a good starter one for for the Jet Li, the early Jet Li films. You'll have a good time with it. It gave me a better understanding of Jet Li as a person slash movie star. Yeah, uh, I've never quite I, because I haven't seen a lot of his early work. I haven't quite gotten it, and this was a nice step towards me going. Oh, okay, I can I can see what people see in Jet Li. Uh, so we're going to a different type of uh, martial, martial arts movie star. That's Sonny Chiba. No, we're not talking about the Street Fighter collection. That's probably the most famous thing he ever did. But we are talking about his attempt to make a second franchise with The Executioner. Uh, and this is a Arrow double feature of the first Executioner film uh, and then the the follow-up film to it, uh, The Executioner 2, Karate Inferno, that despite the title has almost no martial arts in it. <laughs> Which is not true actually of the this first one, The Executioner. Um I'm very mixed about Sonny Chiba. I like the Street Fighter films a decent amount, but he was definitely that attempt with it felt like with American producers working with Hong Kong producers to make a sort of fusion appeal not Bruce Lee type of actor, but one who's like more brutal, like, oh, let's really go for the violence here. So it was like, what if we mix Bruce Lee and like, you know, Ch Steven Seagal? <laughs> this is what Sonny Chiba films feel like a lot of the time. And the, the, the first executioner film here, it's not bad. Um, it's got a, it's apparently the first time ninjas ever appear in a Western feature film. Yeah. There's uh, like a ninja. And a dirty cop. Yeah. And a convicted killer. And the government is like, we need these three to be our special task force. Yeah. It's like one of those, like a dirty dozen, like, we need you guys to work together. And then none of them like each other, but they're all joking and laughing all the time uh, to take on this thing. And they're all like, you know, they're all unreliable because they're sort of like criminals themselves. Um, but it is actually kind of fun. And it was a huge hit for the, for the company Toei when it came out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's playing with like, it definitely feels like it, they watched Enter the Dragon and like paid attention to that. And it also feels like Mission Impossible episodes, you know, but with like a lot of like cool Sandy Chiba martial arts badassery. Now the sequel, <laughs> what the fuck happened there? It reminds me of when it, a filmmaker hears that people like a certain thing. And so they lean really, really hard into it because the first executioner is like, it's got a very, it's got a lot of risque humor and almost like a puerile sense of humor. And it tries to be, I think the first one is trying really hard to be like super cool. What with it's like extreme violence and it's risque humor. And then it, it's almost like they heard, oh, we really, we like the risque humor. That stuff was kind of funny. And they went, oh, you like it? Well, we're going to add so much puerile humor in the second one. Like, we're going to sacrifice the violence for just fart jokes. Like, yeah. it's just going to be fart jokes. No, it's really like, there's scenes that it feels like it's leading up to an action scene, and instead it'll be like a series of fart jokes and sexual innuendo. And I'm like, 
What is happening? And why call it Karate Inferno? I really, I missed the gore. I wanted the gore of the first one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I found both of these fun. I was a little, I, uh, the first one to me was obviously better than the second one. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have a bad time with the second one. Uh, I, I, I just, I really was. You should have seen me. I was just like, my wife came in and said, what's wrong? Cause I'm yelling at the screen. I'm like, I'm just so confused. How did this go so terribly wrong? <laughs> and boy, did it. Maybe, maybe, maybe the first one. Sorry, I just, I have this like imaginary scenario where the director, he wanted the first one to be more like the second one, but the producers were like, no, please get rid of these fart jokes. Like, we needed to have more action. Then it was a hit. He was like, can I make the movie I want to make? And they were like, yes. So it's just nothing but action fart jokes. Uh, the second one comes with an audio commentary. Uh, it's got a, a overview for 30 minutes of Sonny Chiba's life and career. There's a filmography, uh, text pages with data points from the director, uh, and a couple trailers. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then the first film. Oh, God damn it. I hate it when my links don't work. Cause you know, I don't memorize all this stuff, people, right? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> My, I appreciate the respect, but I, I couldn't possibly. Uh, there's audio commentary on the first one as well. Uh, the first, and uh, honestly, this is, uh, no, I'm sorry. This is the exact same. I was thinking they were on two discs. They're on one. So it's the same, uh, uh, extras here. Yeah. Um, if you've never seen the executioner, you should see the executioner. It's really fun. It's a good time. It's really violent. The martial arts are cool. The jokes are actually kind of funny. The characters are good. The second movie is like somebody's nephew took over and decided to write, do the sequel <laughs> and they somehow got the actors to return and like has no clue how to make a movie. <laughs> it's just so awful. Oh, how frustrating. All right. So remember I said, Oh, I think we got one more horror in us. And that would be sort of the sort of horror, the loneliest boy in the world, which is a horror comedy, right? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like one of those, okay, this is a fairy tale. It starts with that sort of once upon a time feeling. Everything's kind of exaggerated. Everything looked like it's on that show Pushing Daisies. You know, it's just very brightly colored and kind of, uh, re- retro looking fifties. Um, like uh, one review said, if you're the sort of person for whom Alf serves as a potent piece of nostalgia, <laughs> uh, and Alf is actually a thing that the main character in this show actually is regularly watching the show. Um, I don't, it's like a guy, uh, man child, Oliver played by Max Hardwood, uh, two social workers, Ashley Benson and Evan Ross are like, okay, well, we're probably going to have to, um, uh, reinstitutionalize him. So he spent a lot of time growing up in that. His mom was this wildly overprotective and kind of disturbed herself woman who died by an accident, but an accident that was caused by Oliver. Uh, that they flash back to a couple times. Um, and basically the, uh, well, the, he starts digging up corpses to have as friends. Cause the social worker's like, you need to have actual friends. And he gets in his head that, oh, you can use dead people as friends, you know, so sort of playing in the Ed Gein sort of thing in a way, but somehow they sort of, sort of start magically come to actual life where they're actually alive. They're still rotting and stuff, but they're like, they are just, you know, they have their personalities and they're alive, but they also are 
completely convinced they are in fact his family and friends. So everyone's like, yes, and trying to give him advice. And then the film starts doing things where like, well, okay, so maybe they, I guess they are actually have come back to life, but how exactly did that happen? It's very, I found myself very like, you're going with magical realism, but then you're like, no, it's really happening. And I don't, I don't, can't explain it really. I mean, there's a lot of charm here, especially with the performances. I thought the performances were sort of like, uh, were very fun, but, uh, a little confusion of what actually is supposed to have happened. And I don't think the comedy really works overall. Yeah. This one, uh, this one kind of missed me. Um, I think it's a, a movie that is, uh, very, in love to a fetishistic point about it's the way that it looks and the way it has like wacky kooky characters and it makes references and it feels, I thought it felt a little try hard across the board, like from the look and feel to the quirkiness to the everything. And it's like, it was all stuff that um, should feel to some degree effortless. I think the difference, like when you watch something that's like a Tim Burton movie or so, especially an older one, um, that is, that is working in the same kind of area as this, like an Edward Scissorhands or Beetlejuice. Yeah. There's a, there's something about those films that feel very effortless. There's a lot of this film that feels very, uh, like it's trying to win me over. Like it's trying to win me over with pastels. It's trying to win me over with quirky characters. It's trying to win me over with eighties references. And I kind of push back against that a little bit. Like I, I sort of rankled against it. Um, it didn't, it did the opposite effect, uh, on me. I'm not sure. Um, I would see something by these guys again, were they to announce a second movie or me see their name attached to a second movie. It may just be growing pains. You know, indie filmmakers need to be afforded the opportunity to take risks and have growing pains, etc. So I'm just going to chalk it up to that and hopefully, see what their next one looks like. Cause this one, this one missed me. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, I can't say I disliked this film, but it did feel like there's some important element in the middle that would have made all this gel and made all this really good. This is definitely a festival. This has festival film written all over it where like saw it with a big audience. Uh, some people enjoyed it enough to be ver- very verbal about their enjoyment. as will happen at festivals. Sure. I could see liking it better in those uh, circumstances, but watching it at home was turned into a little bit of a chore by the end. Yeah. Well, there is a five minute uh, behind the scenes, but that's about it for the loneliest boy in the world. And we are moving on to Voodoo Macbeth. Now, oh. this is a topic I always wanted to know more about, having read multiple times the you know, pages about Orson Welles because he's such a fascinating guy that one of the first big things he had successfully happen was working for, uh, the federal theater project in New York in the 1930s. He was given his big chance to lead a production and he was like, well, we're going to do Macbeth, but we're going to move it from Scotland to a Caribbean Island and have an entirely black cast, which if you might, it might not surprise you to learn that in New York in the 30s was met with much uh, wailing and gnashing of teeth and rending of garments by the local art community and pretty much everybody else. Like, how dare you do this thing? And it was considered like where everyone was like, 
it's not going to work. It's going to fail. And if it's not failing, I'm going to do my best to make sure it fails. Uh, you know, a lot of racism, a lot of critics who are just saying this is just a stunt. It's stupid. Why? What makes you think black people are going to be good enough to do this? And it turned into a gigantic runaway success. And it really launched Orson Welles' career in a very real way. In fact, versions of this still tour today. Um, that being said... Unfortunately, this is the movie they chose to make about it. <laughs> I have a really hard time reviewing this because the backstory to the making of this movie is that this is a student thesis film. This is USC's class got together and went, let's all make a feature together. And it has like 20 screenwriters. And the way that they divvied up the work was like everybody basically wrote and directed their own scenes. <laughs> to its credit, it feels of a piece. It's not necessarily that some scenes are significantly better or worse than others. So it all does feel unified, but, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hey kids, (laughs) y'all made a movie. I mean, and the shame is this is like, this should be Oscar bait. This should be done by a huge production company with big name actors. I mean, this is like, can you imagine them having a really good script of this and sending it around? Everybody would want to be in this fucking movie. You know, it's a cool story that this happened and it's got the bra, you know, bravura. It's got Shakespeare as a big part of it. It's like black people overcoming adversity, which unfortunately you have with the help of a white guy, but that is in fact addressed, you know, that that in and of itself is like, Kind of not cool, man. Um, Orson Welles being such a fascinating historical figure. And they make almost every decision wrong here. And especially, and just so notably with the casting of the guy who's playing Orson Welles, who I was just like, could you at least try to do an impression <laughs> of one of the most specific sounding and performing actors of all time. Like he is such a specific way of being. And this guy, it's like, he never heard of Orson Welles. <laughs> it was just like, I don't know. I'm just going to play myself. <laughs> yeah. It also, you know, it's one of those movies too, that sort of like steers into cliches. If it, if there's a, <laughs> you can see him coming and you're like, is it going to do, is it going to do? Yeah, it did. Like yeah. it's, yeah. <laughs> I, and I chalked that up to inexperience as a student film, hugely ambitious, uh, golf claps all around. Um, <laughs> but until I knew that, I was like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I was so excited about it. Cause like I said, I always wanted to see this story told and it's just, it's just so bland and so filled with like, why would you make this choice rather than that choice? Um, some of the, the, uh, the black actors in this are good, but you never get the, like we were talking about with the other film earlier, it feels like they're just kind of left to their own devices. So they just kind of overplay everything, you know? Um, but yeah, there's also some acting that's not so good in this. And like I said, again, I'm pointing at the guy playing Orson Welles. What are you doing? It's like, okay, you're Fred Flintstone. Hi, I'm Fred Flintstone. (laughs) 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 <laughs> okay, now do Kermit the Frog. Hi, I'm Kermit the Frog. This is this guy. Like, what? What? what huh? Okay, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, um, I, I was mad watching this movie, quite frankly, because of some of these things. Like, wow, what a wasted opportunity. Uh, the one interesting thing about all this is there's actually four minutes of footage from the original Orson Welles production that is one of the bonus features. Yeah. I, I, I like, watched that. And that's like, oh, that's so cool that exists. Yeah. You know, um, because I, 
cool thing that happened in real life, not cool movie about cool thing that happened in real life. So it's like, oh, at least we get four minutes of something neat to look at there. There's also a director's commentary, which is 10 people. Um, so there's a thing. That's so weird. I get that it's a college project, but also it's kind of like feels like, you guys sure you want to release this? I mean, not most people don't release their thesis projects. <laughs> I don't. It's like everybody met each other on the same level of like blandness. Yes. Like whatever distinct voices would have come through, it's sort of like, let's all squash those so that everything is uniform and tidy and cliched. And it's sort of like, who knows if in the mix that there's out of the 20 screenwriters that there's 10 fantastic ones. And it's like, you, you might never know because of the desire to make it so uniform and all of one piece. I, I don't, I, if you are an aficionado of student films, then this is a, uh, then this is an interesting, I think the backstory is interesting. Uh, and, and knowing that in advance may color the movie different. I don't know if I would have known that up front, if I would have felt different about the movie than knowing it after the fact, uh, you know, maybe it's the second film today that I feel a little sorry for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm wouldn't be surprised if everyone involved goes on to bigger and better things. But now because of but, the numbers, I'm going to get 20 angry emails off of the same movie. <laughs> right? I'm like, let's just put John on the ones that aren't that good. <laughs> he loves getting angry emails from directors. <laughs> All right. So something at least a little bit more, well, a whole hell of a lot more commercial is the latest DC animated movie home release. Now the sixth feature length installment of what they're calling the tomorrow verse ever since they rebooted from the previous ones that were going on. Um, and this is Legion of superheroes. One of the comics that I get, I was told by other kids, I was a weird kid because I liked Legion of superheroes. Cause they were all like, why do you read that? I'm like, cause it's fucking good. It's like, yeah, but come on, bouncing boy out matter eating lad. That's dumb. I'm like, Look, man, I hate to tell you this, but all these heroes are dumb across the board when you really take a step back. I mean, come on. Look at Batman alone. Uh, but I really liked this a lot and spent years. It was like one of the last comics I gave up reading of superhero comics. So I was excited. Were you like 80s Giffen stuff or was it like yeah, yeah. 90s? 80s, uh, 80s Giffen okay. stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so I was kind of excited to see this. This is not what I was hoping for. I'll tell you that at all. It's not, I, not, I wanted classic <laughs> Legion of Superheroes and this is not that. What's with this DC animated movies that they're like, they're, they're basically for kids and then the, a character will be like, Supergirl, oh shit. And they're like, wait, <laughs> like what, what is, Cause kids say, are, oh, this is four? cooler. Cause they said the S word. <laughs> um, and yeah, Supergirl is really the main character here. Uh, cause, her brother-in-law, Superman, has predicted that there is, uh, um, well, anyway, it doesn't matter. You start, to start with like Krypton blowing up. So it's like a little bit of her origin story. So she's Supergirl Kara on Earth. Um, her cousin, Superman, she's, helps out with stuff. Uh, she's fighting Solomon Grundy. Um, uh, Superman, Batman save her in the fight and suggest that maybe she has trouble with collateral damage, <laughs> which, yeah, guys, y'all are real great with that yourself, but whatever. And they say, here, here's a door to, uh, the 21st century, uh, or sorry, the 31st century. Uh, you should go be friends with my friends at the Legion Academy, uh, training school for the Legion of Superheroes. 
Uh, and so it's a little bit of back and forth of what's going on in the 21st century and how something happening in the 31st century going on a conspiracy there actually intersects and connects with what's going on in the 21st century as care is introduced to a lot of the care, the, the, you know, well-known members of the Legion, but not the primary ones overall. Cause it's re, this is a total reboot. So it's like, oh, well, there's the, Famous ones, and we see them briefly, and they're like, we got shit to do, so we're going to leave you trainees out, out by yourself, on your own. But, like, really, the main one here who is a big one is Brainiac 5, who's yeah. set up as sort of a antagonist slash eventually friend slash love interest for Supergirl, because, you know, in her universe, Brainiac's a dick. <laughs> Brainiac 5. I'm glad that the movie tells me that over and over know, and right, over. Right. Whatever just to be sure you're clear, if you're one of those racist, all green people look alike to me people, then you should know this is not your daddy's Brainiac. This just, is... Every time they run into each other in the film, they end up having the same conversation, which is like, <laughs> like this conversation about mistrust and I'm not that brainiac. And it's like every time that they share a scene until the end of the movie, it's the idea is like, it's sort of, these are the misfit, like Legion applicants who are all sort of starting to become convinced. They're not getting in. The only one who thinks they will is the one who's, a Kryptonian, you know, as well. So you're like, but they're like, I forget what's the name. There's like a, a not Krypton, but the planet next to Krypton that also got destroyed. But everyone from that planet's a dick. <laughs> I want to say Monel, who's a that's the a, guy. Yeah, is that Mon-El's, Monel's but, the guy? But Monel, oh, it's like it's got an AXN sound to the end of it. It's like Braxen or like it's got some AXN sound to the end, doesn't it? Uh, no, you're getting, I'm getting into Mon- this Monel is the is the, character, the guy, yeah, who is portrayed very differently in the comics and the animated series than he is here for the record. But um, so what? Anyway, I'm glad Jensen Ackles is still playing Batman. I'll tell you that. I think he makes a great Batman. Yeah. Um, I really, really like his work on the, on the voice for that. But I think this is largely unremarkable. It just feels like, well, we we don't want to just cover the same ground that the the last animated like whole run did. So now we have to go and introduce you to all these other characters, and maybe they'll be pertinent in something later. <laughs> I'm like, that's fine and all, but where is my Blue Beetle Booster Gold series? That is the one I think we've all been asking for. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is if I yeah I get these occasionally. Um, I, I've come to set my expectations in a certain place and that is, uh, please don't be super boring, which is where a lot of these DC animated things hit for me. Um, I didn't find this one boring, but it is a little bit childish. I think it's like, I think it's seeking sort of like a preteen DC audience. Um, yeah. And Maybe it hits that goal. I don't really know. I have to say, I do like the look of this yeah. more than the fake anime look of some of the earlier DC animated stuff. Yeah, they're it, going with a sort of cel-shaded uh, appearance for these things now, ever since they rebooted. And I like it. I yeah. like a lot the like way it thick looks. lines and a little more cartoony than the, than the, than the weird. I, I don't think some of the DC designs, particularly Superman, never looked good in that quasi anime style that they were doing for, you know, the better part of like six to eight years. Yeah. Um, so I like the way it looked. It, it's just, it's ultimately, I don't think I'm the target. I don't think I'm the target audience for this. I think it is children who, whose parents allow them to hear the word shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I should be the target audience for this, but I just thought it was one of the weaker ones. Here's some good news on the uh, show coming up soon. We will be talking about, I think the, best DC animated film that they've done in 
quite some time, which is the doom that came to Gotham, uh, which even you might like, John. Mm. It's it's Batman, mm. but re- contextualized in a Lovecraft universe. Oh, is uh, is Dean Stockwell? <laughs> <laughs> no, Dean Stockwell is dead. I'm afraid. Oh, okay. So yeah. Um, but uh, this one has got um, the Legion behind the Legion, which is uh, just the producer writer. Uh, voice actors Meg Donnelly did Supergirl and Yuri Lorenthal who did Monel. Uh, uh, Down to Earth, the story of Supergirl, which is a character driven featurette. Same four people again. Meet the Legionnaires, um, which is just sort of a jokey way of introducing all the characters. Brainiac Attack, the intellect behind the supervillain, um, which is self explanatory. There's from the DC vault are two Superman, the animated series episodes, uh, which were a two parter little girl lost from 1988 that focused on, on Supergirl, uh, and then previews. So yeah, I wish this was better. I was excited for it, but ultimately I thought it was kind of a disappointment. Someday they'll get around to making the great darkness war. The so, great, what was it called? The great darkness war, the big, the big dark side storyline from Legion. Oh, that was I like the big seminal storyline from the eighties. I don't remember the names of them anymore, was, but yeah, I, think I think that's it was the great darkness war. Well, I'm still waiting for them to do a decent version of like a really, a, a really decent version of the, the Titans, uh, the whole betrayal story with a uh, Terra and all that. Yeah. That's such a like essential, like superhero team tale. And every time I've seen it, I'm like, come on y'all got to do better than this but one could make the same argument for the dark phoenix saga like seriously nobody's gonna try and actually put some real work in all right i realize we're not talking about the dark phoenix saga but but um x-men what was it called dark phoenix dark phoenix yeah that was the name of the last the last was x-men dark phoenix yeah and that was dog shit it was so funny to me that in all the interviews they were like no we learned a lot of lessons from last stand and we're gonna make the dark phoenix saga that everybody wanted from the comics and it was like a remake it was like the yeah. same it was like the same movie. it was dog shit it was, it was i i used to say that uh three was the worst of the x-men movies but no longer dark phoenix is unquestionably the worst of the live action X-Men movies. Oh, uh, I don't know that I agree with that, but we'll get into it. Well, someday when they re-release the X-Men films, we'll, I'm sure we'll <laughs> end up rewatching box them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So our final movie, and I'm going to just say this is almost certainly our pick of the week because there's not a hell of a lot of competition is Criterion's release on 4K of the Adventures of Baron Munchausen. A Terry Gilliam classic, a film that had mixed reactions with audiences, but critics kind of universally celebrated it when it came out because it is just wildly inventive, way fun. Talk about your fairy tale movie, but a movie that not only understands that it's a fairy tale, but is really analyzing what does that mean, sort of, um, both for intellectually and comedically. Uh, it's a weird, weird movie, but one that even if you don't totally understand what's going on, it's so nonstop goofy and colorful and funny that it doesn't really matter if you don't completely understand what's going on. Um, it, there's an unknown European city uh, that's being attacked uh, from the outside, from the Ottoman Empire. And meanwhile, there's a state touring stage production doing a story of this fanciful character assumed to not even be real, Baron Munchausen, of his life and adventures. Um and so 
the real Baron Munchausen suddenly shows up going, this is none of this is right. And he's very old, right? You're like much older than the characters portrayed. And he's like, yeah, this is everything here is wrong. These are our lies. But then starts looking at the actors and going, oh, wait, it's you. You're my friend. And with the role they were playing, and you're like, what? So this is just a crazy guy, right? But uh he ends up taking this sort of little girl uh with him on an adventure to go regain his actual friends who are played by the same actors who are playing the actors playing them but in through this series of fantasy worlds what's real what's not it doesn't matter because this film is really just kind of about joy i think more than anything and if you watch the bonus features or if you just happen to already be familiar with the where the legend of Baron Munchausen came from in literature, it's really, really interesting, kind of started as a political end joke and then sort of exploded up and kept building and getting crazier and weirder. This is a very valid interpretation of the Munchausen myth, very different from other versions that have existed before, but I would say inarguably the best version of it, or at least the most entertaining to watch. Yeah. This is the first blue, uh, not not Blu-ray, excuse me. Let me go back further than that. It's the first DVD I ever owned. Oh wow! I bought Munchausen and uh, and Ants. On the, on <laughs> what the a weird same combo. Day. Well, Ants because I had I liked it pretty good, and it was going to be um, it was computer animated, mm-hmm. and so at the time I don't know I don't know if Toy Story had hit DVD yet. I would imagine I would have got gotten Toy Story if it was out, but I ended up getting Ants and uh, and Munchausen. Um, you know how there's movies that like the pendulum will swing for you. Neverending mm. Story is this way for me, where loved it when I was a kid. Then when it first came out on DVD, uh, it didn't connect with me, and I was kind of like, "Why did I even like this?" And then waited a few years, watched it again, and was like, "No, I kind of like this. Like this is pretty good." I've still never seen it. But you'll go through these like I, I feel like there are movies like that for everybody, where it's like you'll remember something fondly, watch it, and be like, "Uh." And then wait yeah. and watch it again and be like, oh. Yeah. And Munchausen hit me in the uh this time. Oh, no. It was a little bloated and a little. Oh, it's way bloated. He- it was heavy. <laughs> and it's like Gilliam's stuff, when it's really working, feels really nimble. Uh, and this feels very leaden. And I, I realize I'm being like completely metaphorical, but there's something about this movie that feels. Uh, like fat and slow moving and like um i don't feel that way at all (laughs) it's it's like it's almost so baroque it's just so soggy with stuff that it kind of lumbers from scene to scene now maybe next time i watch it and i and this is a movie that i previously it was a cable mainstay in the early 90s sure um this is one that like you know i've seen it a ton of times but for whatever reason it was kind of a swing and a miss with me this time. Hmm. Uh, and more in the second half than the first half of the movie. I mean, I agree with you. It is like, it's just everything. This movie is like, has just so much shit in it. It's just nonstop. And it just goes, okay, we're done with that. Let's move on to the next thing. And that's even more stuff to add on to it. But it never feels like lumbering or slow to me. It feels quite the opposite. It's just racing from thing to thing. Yeah. I think give me like, like five, six years. Let me watch it again, yeah, and I'll again. swing back. I'll swing back and be like, "Oh no, it's I. I like it. It's still pretty good." But some great cast decisions here. John Neville, who was not like somebody who was. 
I mean, he was more of a stage actor, really. Uh, and this is one of his few big movie roles, but he plays Baron Munchausen. Eric Idle plays one of his, uh, his assistants who can run really fast. The actress, uh, director, writer, uh, Sarah Polly, this was her first film. She yeah, plays the young girl. Gilliam got some grief recently because of stuff Polly said about the oh, really? filming of the movie. Apparently, like a lot of the big explosions and stuff like that, he was just throwing her in the middle of it. And Jesus. There was no concern. F- no one, Basically, she was saying on set, and now that she's a director, she realizes like how wrong it was that nobody was concerned about the safety of this little girl. Oh, geez, yeah. uh, and I could see Gillian being scatterbrained enough to not even think about that and just putting her beside explosions well, ex- or squibs or ex- whatever. Especially because, <laughs> as is also explored in the bonus features with this, as with almost every Terry Gilliam film, how he always goes over budget pretty oh, much and, and, and I, like spectacularly over budget and gets in shit tons of trouble. And then suddenly is like really trying to slash and cut corners to be yeah. able to finish the movies. Uh, he is not the guy you, <laughs> that you, you want an accountant standing over his shoulder at all times. If you've got Terry Gilliam and you're producing one of his films, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's probably what we're looking at. We got to finish this up. We got to go. We got to go. We got to go. We got to get to these shots. Um, Oliver Reed, delightful as Vulcan, the the jealous husband of um, Uma Thurman's Venus, yeah. uh, who's also this is a very young Uma Thurman in here, who's just like they're playing, you're just playing the goddess of love, and at that age she was just she was the, a teenager when they shot this. She was like nineteen, yeah. I think. She's just startling. You're like, wow, you really. There's a reason you became a huge star. You're just a vision of beauty. Yeah, you know. Um, and then a Bill a Jonathan Price who was his star with the star of uh, Gilliam's Brazil is sort of like the the bad guy, if you will, so, yeah. sort of like the the officiant bad guy. With lots of other people, especially Robin Williams, who was credited as Ray Di Tutto, which apparently is a play on King of Everything in Italian, uh, uh. who has the most over the top crazy part in this, uh, playing just basically a floating head and disconnected from its body that doesn't want to be reconnected with its body because it wants to be think about higher things and cerebral things. And if I'm not connected to my body, I don't think about gross things like eating and sex. <laughs> it's back in the day when Batman was coming out, I was just the perfect age for like this gritty vision of you know, of a DC character hitting the big screen. Like it was like, Oh, you know, cause before that it had been Superman and like nothing. And then like, here was Batman and it looked so cool. Mm. And America had Batmania. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what, what I was doing at the time was like any magazine I would pick up that it had a Batman article in it. And so there was a star, the, the Batman cover, uh, star log magazine had like a lengthy feature on Munchausen. And had like photos from the film and pictures of Robert Williams as this like floating head. And I was like, this looks crazy. Like, I can't wait to see it. And then I guess the theatrical release, like they were, I don't know if the company was going under, if they were embarrassed of it, but it got dumped into art house theaters, even though it cost the, it cost as much, yeah. if not more than a summer blockbuster. No, no, no. The but, release of this is a horror story yeah, all on its and, own. And then I didn't see it until it was on cable and I'm like flipping through channels and it was like, Oh, there's that movie from that issue of Starlog that I had. Um, I, it was, it felt difficult to see until it came out on Showtime and mm-hmm. Showtime aired it like 24 seven for like two years. <laughs> Yeah, um, and by the way, this came to almost double budgeted. Yeah. By the time he was done. And it was arguably what killed Gilliam's career. 
It's uh, all there on the screen. Yeah. Um, every, every, because every of red that. sets on the no, screen. Not because anything is bad with this film per se. It's just the studio saw it, said, what the fuck do we do with this? Like they do with every Terry Gilliam film. I mean, like, who are these producers? <laughs> like, you're like, have you guys, ser- did you seriously give him all this money before you saw one of his other films? Uh, but then like the fact that no producer wants to work with somebody who routinely goes that far over budget and is that hard to work with. And Gilliam is famously incredibly difficult to work with, especially director to producer side yeah he's just like man fuck you guys you understand art like hey man look i get where you're coming from but seriously sit the fuck down (laughs) um yeah i i still think this is a glorious and sadly underappreciated um exploration into fairy tale surrealism uh it's a lot of fun there in the new 4k desk comes with an audio commentary recorded by terry gilliam and actor writer charles mccown in 2008 uh there is the madness and misadventures of munchausen archival documentary uh that was made in 2008 as well it's divided into three parts there's special effects narrated by Terry Gilliam in, uh, in 2022. So it's pre-composite effects, model shots, computer imagery, yada, yada, behind the scenes of that stuff. There's four deleted scenes with optional commentary by Terry Gilliam. Uh, there is storyboards for unfilmed scenes, which also uh, have Terry Gilliam and right, actor-writer Charles McKeon talking about them. Marketing Munchausen, which is honestly one of the most fun extras on here, because it kind of gets into the whole, like, the studio had no fucking clue what they were doing, or who to show this to, or how to get comments. And each one is Gilliam just sort of doing it, going over what they did. And the best is the comment cards they gave to the audience. And half of them are just, this movie needs more Sting. Because <laughs> Sting's in like one scene yeah. for like 20 seconds. Like, where was Sting? Sting was the best part of this film. You're like, God, people are stupid. Uh, which is pretty much what Terry Gilliam is trying as nicely as possible to, to say. <laughs> God, people are stupid. Uh, also, this new video essay, The Astonishing and Really True History of Baron Munchausen. It's only 18 minutes. Quite frankly, you could probably do a four-hour miniseries on the history of this fictional character in terms of, like, all the ways he was created just, and affected and were used politically to stab at people yeah. and stuff like that. Like, really fascinating. But this is the the, the truncated, but okay, I get it, 18-minute version is well worth watching if you don't know. Terry Gilliam on the South Bank show from 1991, uh, looking at his career, which also features Michael Palin uh, and the dog <laughs> from this movie. Uh, Miracle of Flight, which is an animated short film directed by Gilliam in 1974, which is pretty cute, about six minutes long. And then a l- illustrated leaflet by Etic, uh, with an essay by critic and author Michael Koreski. Uh, yeah, this is if you haven't seen it, you should see it. All right. You talked to me into it, I guess. <laughs> I guess I'll make it my pick of the week. I, I, I mean, actually, honestly, what we're... Well, I looked uh, at the list. I got to say, it was Executioner, Executioner 2 were originally, and I probably enjoyed Executioner more than my 20th rewatch of <laughs> Baron Munchausen, uh, like my first time with Executioner versus my 22nd, 23rd right. time with Munchausen. But Executioner um, 2 is so un- unforgivably terrible. And there's also not much in the way of bonus features in this two-disc collection no, either. No, um, but you talk me into it. I'll, okay. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll allow I'll it. I'll agree with you, yes. 
Fair. I'll allow it. Fair enough. Was there anything you want to promote, John? Because I think there is. There's nothing right now. What? There's nothing You're right now. You're the star of a movie that's being distributed. Yeah, but it, it's tomorrow. It, come, it plays in Austin tomorrow. Well, it, yeah, uh, but I mean, assumably, uh, presumably right, here's, it's going to sell past that. So if you live in the Pacific Northwest, if you're within, I'll just say like 700, 800 miles of Seattle, <laughs> um, uh, it's going to be playing at the Beacon Cinema on Memorial Day weekend, like it's a big blockbuster. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be playing in the theaters Memorial Day weekend. And what's the name of the film? Um, the name of the film is Make Popular Movies. It'll be at the Beacon Cinema on uh, Saturday, May 27th at 7 p.m. in Seattle. Tomorrow it premieres here in Austin. I don't, we'll see how it goes over. I'm hoping it goes over good. We had our cast and crew screening. You were there. Yeah, it was it's, fun. It's a weird movie. It's a little loose. It's a little absurd. It's, uh, it's you know... It's, but you are the we, star We of talk it. about low-budget stuff on here all the time, and <laughs> this is definitely, like, in that category of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I am the star, so it, I feel like I have a... You know, it's the first time I've I've been in stuff that's more visible, but I haven't been more visible in a film. Right. <laughs> so, it's... Uh, that's you know, the reason I'm to watch. curious as to what people will think. Yeah. So. yeah and you are so great in it. You, especially you. there's like a award ceremony speech that you said you kind of improv more or oh, less. Oh, the whole thing, the whole movie is improvisation. Right. Like but you said that was like the hardest part. That right? one was from, I can tell you, I, I, I've done a little bit of press this week and the story has come up a couple times, but it's very true, which is like, it's the, it's, it, we, we've talked a couple times in this episode about emails from directors where it's just like they can't get over that this one person with a <laughs> microphone said they didn't really care for the movie. Right. And in some cases, like the, the most recent case, I went back and listened. I was mixed positive. I didn't care for the movie, but I was like, it's clear that the person who made it is talented. Didn't matter. Was still angry. <laughs> and it's like, I think in improving that scene, it helped a lot to have gotten uh, nasty emails and letters from <laughs> directors who were mad <laughs> that one time I may have said, I didn't really like it. That's funny. So, um, yeah, yeah I was able to, that was you able channeled to, that yeah, channel, all that. Oh, that's a great that. scene, man. You watch that. You would, I would never have guessed it was improv. It was just, it, it oh, felt you. good enough to have been pre-scripted, you know, and thought out. Thank it was you. really great. It was very, it was a very strange, uh, scene to film. Fair enough. Well, you should go see it for yourself and find out because I had a great time watching, uh, making popular movies. You should, you should go do it too. Support indie film when it stars John Golson. <laughs> and, and only then as the stack <laughs> is revealed. No, I'm just kidding. 